You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. I'm Michelle Camayo. I'm the compliance leader here at Bolton, and I work with employers on a daily basis. I have these practical discussions. I am not giving legal advice. There's my disclaimer. And I always caution, if you're on the line and you're listening, that there are lots of emerging emerging ordinances, so just be diligent in your updates. The goal today is to help you through any compliance concerns or issues you might be having, and we help you address those. And Ask Michelle was created to answer questions that are most meaningful to you, our audience members. So we really encourage you to submit questions in advance at askmichelle at boltonco.com or submit questions now or throughout the webinar today in using your questions pane. We're going to start with a few updates and then I'll go into answering your questions. So we've got our second episode in the new half hour format where we're just doing a brief HR or benefits updates followed by answering your questions. And just remember, you can always submit your question in advance. The new episodes are available on Apple Podcasts every Tuesday after the monthly uh, webinar or discussion that we have today. So if you didn't catch last month in August, you can go down to Apple Podcasts, download Kamayo's Compliance Talk, and then listen to the recent episode. Start with some compliance chatter. A few updates or a few things that might want to be top of mind when it comes to compliance with regards to your group health program. So whenever I talk about compliance, I always start off by saying, or maybe even reminding those who work in uh, benefits for a company, that when your employer introduced a benefits program, it essentially introduced risk in the form of laws and regulations that must be followed. And we all know it's not as easy as in a, a company saying, we're going to offer benefits and, and, and then they can just do what they want. They have to follow several different laws and regulations. I mean, the Affordable Care Act alone has to be followed, and that was about a 2,000-page bill. But if you take all of the regulations that had to be written and the guidance, you're looking at over 10,000 pages alone on the Affordable Care Act. But you still have to look at ERISA, and we still look at HIPAA and COBRA, and, and really just so much more. So we're here to talk about some compliance chatter, what I've been hearing from our employers, what the concerns are, and even doing or excuse me, looming deadlines. The first thing that's creating uh, quite a buzz, and it's starting to pick up, you may not have heard about it yet, it's part of the health cost transparency efforts that the federal government is responsible for. So there's an upcoming deadline at the end of this year. It's actually December 27th. I'm really not sure how we got to that deadline. December 27th of this year, it's for the Section 204 RxDC reporting. It's all about prescription drug costs. And if you're an employer and you have a fully insured medical plan, I have great news. The carrier, your carrier, whether it be Anthem, whether it be Cigna or Aetna, uh, Blue Shield, 
your carrier will take care of the reporting on your behalf. So that's wonderful. However, if you have a self-insured medical plan, then you likely will need to take some action. So if the TPA or your, T or your PBM doesn't submit all the files required in this Section 204 reporting, then you as a plan sponsor must register an account with CMS and then you must upload the remaining data depending on what your TPA or PBM will not do. Now, if you're fortunate, your TPA and PBM will submit all the data files on your behalf. But if you are not, then you will need to take some steps. We are seeing more and more communications coming out from TPAs, and the TPAs seem to be coordinating with most of the PBMs. Um, but if you've not gotten any communication thus far and you have a self-insured medical plan, you definitely, I would recommend that you start to explore that right now because the deadline is coming up at the end of December. I've got a lot of questions on Medicare Part D notices because the deadline to distribute those is October 15th. And the intent of the Medicare, Medicare Part D notices, it's really for the employee's benefit. So for example, Medicare open enrollment is coming up. And if you're an employee working, and if you have access to credible coverage, then you don't have to enroll in Medicare Part D, or really you don't have to at all. But if you um, have access to credible coverage, you won't be penalized for not enrolling. So it's important that a Medicare Part D recipient or someone who's eligible knows whether or not the employer offers what CMS considers creditable coverage. And the requirement for the employer is just to ensure that you are distributing that notice per the regulations, which means that every Medicare eligible employee that you have, including their spouse or dependents, should receive one of these notices. So then the next question is, well, how do you know that a spouse or a child is Medicare eligible? And I think in some instances, you just wouldn't know that information. So the best practice or what we most commonly see happen is that employers distribute the Medicare, Medicare Part D notice to everyone that's eligible for the group health plan. And that is certainly compliant. We are also starting to see MLR rebates. If you're an employer under 100 and you have a group health plan, you're probably used to seeing this. Most carriers each year do give out an MLR rebate. This is an Affordable Care Act provision, the medical loss ratio rebate. It requires um, insurance companies to spend a certain amount of money on claims, and if they do not, they have to give employers and participants back some of that money. So we just call it MLR rebate. You may have gotten an email from a a carrier, if you're under 100, and they may have said or even sent you a check already, it is that time of year. And I think the important thing to note here is we talk about it in compliance because it's not as easy as the employer cashing the check and this is moving on. Unfortunately, it is not that easy. There are very specific ways in how you have to handle that money because in most instances, it's considered uh, plan assets, and plan assets have to be treated in a certain way. Most often that way is that 
you have to uh, refund the portion of the rebate that's attributable to the employee cost back to the participant. So if you got that, if you have any questions on that, just let me know. In the last couple of weeks, I've heard a lot about long-term, or I've heard, I've gotten, I should say, a lot of questions about long-term care tax. So we all know, or you probably heard about Washington rolling out this uh, government long-term care program. And they were set to roll it out, and they pulled back, and then the tax, uh, they delayed it. So it's coming. It's coming next year in the summertime. But then other states started perking up and paying attention. You know, California is one of them. They are considering a long-term care tax. So it would be a government-funded long-term care program, and, of course, it would be funded by payroll tax. This is all proposed for the most part. The only state that has passed, actually passed it in the legislation is Washington. And other states are watching Washington very carefully because Washington didn't get it right the first time. And that's why they had to delay the, the implementation timeline. So we're looking at, you know, how is Washington going to fix it? And once we know how they fix it, I think we're going to start seeing more states come and pass this similar type program. Uh, for example, I know Pennsylvania introduced a bill, and a few other states have introduced a bill as well. And when I, I say introduced a bill, that just means the bill's on the floor and it could be voted on. Sometimes it doesn't even make it to vote when it's introduced. So I would say, um, you know, there can be a lot of people out there who want to talk about, you know, it's imminent, it's imminent. Uh, and this is really just most of the time it's to drum up business. You know, they want you to feel that anxiety about it's coming. If if this does pass at the state level, any more states other than Washington, we will certainly keep you updated. And what we are seeing is that this is an individual, you know, it's an employee payroll tax, and the employer has to pay a certain amount as well. But it's, But offering a group long-term care product ahead of time is not always going to be the way to avoid this tax. So if you have questions about that, reach out to your benefits broker. We have a question about the MLR rebate. So how should we refund employees for the rebate? Is there a calculation for figuring out the medical cost, the medical rebate? There is a calculation. Um, you could build a spreadsheet. It really just depends on the amount of the rebate and the, the ratio of contributions. So, for example, if your employees pay 0% and your, your employer pays 100%, well, the employee gets none of that money back because they didn't pay any money to begin with. But if your ratio is 80% uh, employer funded and then 20% employee funded, then you're going to use that 20% to allocate the portion of the rebate that should be given to the participants. Um, I do have a great handout that I attached. So if you go to the handouts uh, toolbar, you can download it. And one of those handouts will give you very specific directions on who you need to give it to and how you can return the rebate to the participant. And it will also answer the question about, your follow-up question was, do we refund a portion to separated employees, so terminated employees who left within the year? You can do that, but there's also a little bit of room 
to only give it to the current participants. And the handout I attach will explain that in detail. And it's all about what you can get comfortable with as an organization. So if you can, you know, if you read through it and you say, okay, I'm comfortable doing this and I'm going to give it to current participants, my suggestion is just document what you've done. And that way, if you're ever audited, if it's ever questioned, you can go right back to your documents and say, and say okay, here's what I did and here's why I was comfortable with it. And here's the, and here's the documentation of um, how I got there. Always a good idea to have that. Just a quick reminder that, that someone had asked the, the name of the podcast. The name of the podcast is Pamayo's Compliance Talk. So that's my last name, of course. So C-A-M-M-A-Y-O, Pamayo's Compliance Talk. And you'll find it right there on Apple. All right. So long-term care right now, the talk of any tax or any more state programs is just buzz other than Washington. We know Washington has one. It's delayed until the summer of next year. Uh, so there's no tax currently that you should be taking from your Washington workers with regards to LTC. We will, my prediction is that by this time next year, we will see something uh, from another state. We'll see it passed. And that very well may be California. We'll have to see how busy California is with other items, though, as well. I know it's open enrollment time, so I don't want you to forget, like I said, when you when an employer introduces a benefits program, you there are certain rules, regulations, uh, distribution requirements, notice requirements that must be followed, and there's so many of them. It's really difficult to keep track unless it's your full-time job. So I'm here to help, and, you know, this is my reminder. Do not forget there are legally required notices that must be distributed during open enrollment. And the two big ones are the medical SBCs. And if you're unfamiliar with what the SBC looks like or if you don't know where yours are, just reach out to your broker representative, and they will send you all of the medical SBCs. So there should be an SBC for each medical product that your employees can enroll in. So if you have a Kaiser HMO and you have Blue Shield PPO and Blue Shield HMO, you would have three medical SBCs that must be distributed to your eligible participants during open enrollment. And the same thing goes with annual health care notices. Uh, this is typically going to be your HIPAA special enrollment rights notice, your children's health insurance program notice, and uh, a few other notices as well that we've all seen, but we kind of don't read it all the way through, but they are legally required to be distributed. It's a federal mandate. Just my reminder as you go into the open enrollment season. We have a, uh, a, an update on the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association lawsuit. I don't know if you remember last year we published a compliance alert and a blog, and then if you were a bullpen client uh, with regards to medical, we sent you an email saying, all right, there's this lawsuit, Blue Shield has to pay, Blue Cross Blue Shield Association have to pay, which includes Anthem here in California and Blue Shield here in California. Some states, Blue Cross Blue Shield is one entity, and in other states, they are two uh, separate entities. So, uh, so what happened was they, they, uh, are, were, were, came to a settlement. Let's say they came to a settlement. They never had, no guilt was proven that um, anything, they had any wrongdoing, but they came up with a settlement 
the final settlement has been approved. So in August, the final settlement was approved, which means now the money can go out to the claimant. And I have had employers reach out and say, okay, how do I file a claim? So I just want to let everyone know the deadline to file was last year, last November. Now we're waiting on the money to be given to everyone who had filed. And since I was an Anthem uh, enrolled member during the years of the lawsuit, which is 2008 to 2020, I did my own filing for myself and my two dependents. And so I went on the website this morning because because you can check your claim status. If you have your unique ID number or your claim number, you can go and check your claim status. So I thought, you know what, I'll do it right now because I want to see if um, if the money's been released or if it's checked. Or I actually think I gave them my Venmo when I filled out a, a claim. Uh, but it said that my claim is in review. So I don't think anyone's actually gotten any money yet, but it will happen if, if you did file a claim under this Blue Cross Blue Shield Association class action lawsuit. I have another question, so I'm going to take that here. Okay. Sometimes you don't, oh, this is, oh, this is a great question. Thank you for asking this one. So the question is, sometimes you don't have the SBCs during open enrollment. When is the last day to distribute to be compliant? This is a part where um, get a little frustrated with carriers, and sometimes it's timing. If we make a last-minute decision and then we want the carrier to create an SBC and, you know, within a week or two, they're likely not going to do that or they're not going to be able to do that in fourth quarter. Um, but I will tell you the law. So the law says you have to distribute it before your employees make plan decisions. So that is technically how the regulations read. So if open, if open enrollment starts on November 10th, you have to distribute medical SBCs by November 10th or on November 10th. And the easiest way to do that is if you use a BIM admin system and your employees use self-service to enroll or go through open enrollment, you just upload the SBCs into that system and you can call it a day and you're compliant. But there are carriers who do not have medical SBCs in uh, ready in time for you to upload it into the system or distribute during open enrollment. And, and there could be many reasons for that. I'm not saying it's the carrier's fault. It's maybe just a timing issue. But if that's the case, you can't distribute SBCs. You don't have them. The carrier didn't have them ready. While that's technically not compliant, there, you have no option but just to distribute them as soon as the carrier gives it to them or gives it to you, I should say. There is an update on the California SPSL. As you can see at the, the um, second to last bullet point, California SPSL is likely to be extended. I, we're almost looking at it as a guarantee. Oh, <laughs> you saw that I was going to be talking about it. Yeah, we're almost thinking this is almost guaranteed. I mean, we don't see why Newsom won't sign it. It's on his desk, if you will. We expect in the next couple of days, I think um, I think maybe tomorrow, maybe on Monday, that he will sign that into law and it is, will be extended. And when that happens, we'll go. Bolton will send out a compliance alert. I've already got it ready. I'm just waiting for Newsom to sign because I, I want to say like it's almost a guarantee. But gosh, we've seen so many weird things happen in the past couple of years 
that uh, I was, I'm just waiting for him to sign it. Yes, that's likely going to happen. And there are a few changes to the SPSL that I will write about in the article, or I have written about. And then the last one, as far as what I've been hearing, San Francisco recently passed Proposition G, which is a paid leave specific to the public health, to a public health emergency leave. And that's effective on October 1st. Well, that'll be interesting. If you have employees in San Francisco and you are, you are an employer with 100 or more employees worldwide, so not just San Francisco, if you have 100 or more employees worldwide and you have employees working in the city of San Francisco, then you must offer them or give them this new public health emergency paid leave. And the leave hours can be reduced by the California SPSL if it's extended. So the two, I was reading through Proposition G, just looking at the pay, the amounts of paid leave and the hours, it's up to 80 hours. I looked at it and I said, hmm, this looks really similar to the, the way the California SPSL works. And so I wanted to find out, do they run concurrently? Can you, you know, do you have to give two separate buckets? And no, you do not have to give two separate buckets to your San Francisco employees. Um, essentially, they run concurrently. Or if you want to look at it this way, the leave hours under Proposition G will be reduced by California SPSL uh, if that gets extended. And I'm, I'm sure that it will. Yes, the California SPSL is to be extended is not giving a new bucket of time. If they've used uh, if they've used it already, they do not get a new bucket. It's just extending. Correct. All right, that's the that's a lot of the the buzz I've been hearing lately. If you have something on your mind that you've come across or you see during the next month, and feel free to shoot me an email at askmichelle at boltonco.com. And if you are a Bolton benefits client or a Bolton client, then you can email me directly, as I'm sure you know. I had a few questions that were submitted from our audience members. I'll start out with the first one. I always get a lot of tax questions, and I can see why. It can be very confusing. So the first question is, do we start deducting premiums for voluntary life as soon as the employee enrolls, even if they need approval for amounts above guarantee issue. So let's look at that um, in a practical situation. So I'm a new hire, and I see that Voluntary Life has $50,000 guarantee issue. So I could get $50,000 of life insurance without answering health questions. But I can enroll for up to 150, let's say. But I have to answer health questions and be approved for amounts above 50. So the employer is asking, do we start deducting for the entire 150 or do we wait until they get approval for the amounts above guarantee issues to start, to start the full deduction? And the answer is typically that you wait. So if I'm a new hire and I enroll, you only deduct premiums for the voluntary life amount that's guarantee issue to start. And then once you get notification that the amounts above guarantee issue issue were approved, then you start the payroll deduction. That's how it should typically work. Another question about taxation, should AFLAC type policies, so we're talking cancer insurance, accident insurance, critical illness insurance, should those policies be paid for via a post-tax deduction or pre-tax? So I did have a question and one of our employers said, 
um, you know, they came back to me and said, Aflac said we can take these pre-tax, or Aflac said to take them pre-tax. And, you know, I really thought that was unfair of the Aflac rep because, yes, can you take them pre-tax? You can. But what that means is if you take a pre-tax deduction for these policies, then the employee has to pay taxes on the benefit that the policy pays out. And I don't know about you, but some of these policies pay out. I mean, I just, I just had um, a friend of mine get uh, an $8,000 lump sum payout from her AFLAC policy, and it was post-tax, thank goodness, but if it had been a pre-tax deduction, she'd be paying taxes on 8000 instead of her monthly premium, which was $25 per month, or is. So I don't want you to, I would caution you to rely on the rep selling the product for that type of compliance advice, because they often don't give you the full story. I really think it's to, it is, I don't think, it is to your employee's benefit to take a post-tax deduction on the premium. That way the benefit is tax-free. Another question about an IRS vehicle or taxation is the FSA. So this one is not exactly about taxation. Uh, it's about the bucket of money. So the question is, can a new employee elect the FSA maximum if he or she already did so with a previous employer earlier in the year? The answer is yes. The FSA health care maximum. So I'm going to emphasize health care. The FSA health care maximum is by employer. So if the max is $2,750 with one employer and $2,750 with another, and you um, are eligible for both employer FSAs, you can sign up for both of them, and you can get the full amount for both of them. That's for health care. I want to be very specific. That was for health care. For dependent care, it is an annual IRS household maximum. The last question also kind of falls in the IRS section as well. And someone asked me, who makes the rules with regards to qualifying events? So most of us know that a qualifying event really dictates when an employee can enroll or drop the plan, as well as when their dependents can enroll or drop the plan. You know, one of the most common qualifying events would be a marriage, birth of a child, divorce, those types of things are very um, straightforward. It's just like, yes, of course we know those are qualifying events. But who made those rules and why? So it's an IRS Section 125 rule. So when you take a pre-tax contribution, the IRS obligates you as the employer to follow rules with regards to qualifying events or what the IRS calls permitted status changes. And those are the one and the same qualifying event. So that's when the IRS says, you know, your employee and you, the employer, are enjoying these pre-tax savings, and now you have to um, follow our rules with regards to when employees can come on and off the plan. And it protects the plan, so I think it's a great rule. And then carriers often have their own rules that may supplement the IRS rules or may work in conjunction with the IRS rules. So it's the IRS first and foremost that governs qualifying events, and then the carriers will have their own um, rules as well, but if you're taking pre-tax deductions, you need to make sure you always follow the IRS rules because they're the ones who, um, I, I don't want to say they have the bigger say in it, but uh, they are really going to be first follow the IRS and then follow your carrier.
had a couple questions submitted before I leave you today, so let's take a look at that. Another question about the MLR rebate. Do we refund to employees if we pay 100% of the base plan, but the employee has opted to upgrade to a higher plan level? You would, as long as the rebate is attributable to the plan that they upgraded to. Some of the rebates are, I would say, all of the rebates are per plan. So it's not just going to be, oh, because you were an Anthem customer, you get this amount. There's going to be, there should be a line item with your rebate that shows you what plan it's for. So if that employee opted to upgrade to a higher plan level, and that plan is the plan that got that particular rebate, then yes, they would also get a refund. And then I have a question about the FSA healthcare. Uh, 2850. I'm sorry. I'm behind on my IRS maximums. I didn't mean to indicate that that was a, the 2750 wasn't, was a, uh, was the current IRS max. I just threw out the number that was most familiar with me. Um, okay. So if the employee works for two employers within one year, they can't exceed the IRS max. Um, no, it's, it's the IRS maximum is per employer. Well, let me let me re let me say that again. The IRS maximum for the healthcare FSA is per employer, not per year. Per employer. So if the employee works for two employers within one year, they can have two buckets of money. They can have twenty eight fifty times two, if they so choose, because the the healthcare IRS max is per employer. So yes, in your example, your example is could they uh, elect 2000 with the last employer and then contribute 2800 with the current employer? Yes, they certainly could, as long as it's two separate employers. They could do that. And sometimes, you know, it's probably not likely that you would even know that your employee had an FSA with a previous employer. But I think quite, uh, employees, as they go through the new enrollment, they ask ask you as the HR representative. They want to ask you, oh, hey, can I do this again? And the question for healthcare FSA is always going to be yes. You get two separate buckets for separate employers. All right, that's it. Thanks so much. Uh, oh, I have one question. The HSA is annual, correct? Yes, that is correct. The HSA is an annual IRS maximum. Yes, it is not per employer. And dependent care is a 5,000 calendar year maximum per household. Yes. They don't make it easy on us to remember this, do they? All right. Great questions, everyone. Thank you so much. I'll see you next time. Bye.